0: Welcome to the 3B3 Podcast, a weekly look at the world of hockey with your hosts, Cassie, Pat, and Patrick.
1: Pat, you had a question at the end of our last episode. Could you remind us of what that was?
2: I don't remember the exact words I use, but do you ever think we'll see a day, or would you ever hope for a day where... At the very least, the National Hockey League is no longer a four-line, 12-forward league. And maybe we we see rosters trim back, so we no longer live the days of guys playing anywhere between four and ten minutes a night.
1: Okay, so I guess I'll kick off um, while Patrick's trying to refocus. Um, so my first thought when you asked that question was... Never happen in a million years because the NHLPA will fight tooth and nail to like keep rosters at 23. Um, <laughs> unless they, well, and nope, they're going to fight tooth and nail regardless. So they're not gonna. They're not gonna. Um, that being said, I think coaches would like for that to happen probably. Um, it simplifies things a lot. Uh, I mean, but then you start doing that. You also start thinking, well, do we really need six defensemen? How, how many do we actually play a night? Do we play four and then the other two get, you know, five, ten minutes a night? Or, you know, do we keep six and, and keep doing what we're doing? So um, once you start looking at the forwards, like, chopping off that fourth line then you start looking at also the defense and chopping off that last pair um, which I don't think will happen I think forward lines would go down before defensive pairs would because there's still coaches that willingly play seven defensemen a game um, and you know shorten their fourth line because of that so they're obviously willing to get rid of the forward at the expense of adding a defenseman Um, that's a strategy that coaches currently use. So I don't think they'd be at a loss with losing two more guys.
0: (laughs) I, yeah, I think we'll see positionless hockey before we'll see any sort of on ice reduction of lines. I think you'll probably, we're getting close to it now. I mean, like we're getting very close to positionless hockey right now. You're seeing those guys like Eric Carlson and drew Dowdy and Brent Burns. Um, starting to take everything old is new again, right? The Rover is kind of coming back to Mm -hmm. a certain degree. So, and, and to your point, Cassie, the NHL PA absolutely throw a hissy fit. I mean, they're, I'm, I'm trying to think logistically what the NHL could even throw back at them as a negotiation. Nothing.
1: Um, It would be nothing.
0: Right. You know, what would they, they'd have to, they'd have to basically take a cap off. And let these guys, you know, earn 30 million a year, kind of almost NBA style salaries for the NHLPA to even go well, maybe or add five more teams or something. So those jobs that went away, those guys could have some place to play.
1: But see, I thought that, too. I was sitting there thinking, well, if they took away or if they added more teams, would they trim? Ro-? No, they wouldn't because the NHLPA would be like, well, no, we're going to keep We we still want those three guys on every roster. We're not going to. Because that that increases their number of guys in the uh, association, so yeah, that gives them more power. Or you know, so, no, I don't think they would. I don't the, think they would. Uh, they accept that.
0: Every every union wants more dues-paying members, not fewer. Right. Right.
2: But one thing I've always considered strange, and maybe because that's I'm not much of a. Uh, a union guy per se, I've lived so long in a non-union state that, you know, I don't kind of understand the ins and outs, but I've never understood why there is a separate professional hockey players association for the AHL and ECHL. And then there's the NHL PA and kind of in the back of my mind, since NHL clubs play or pay their prospect salaries in the AHL, If there were some way, okay, we reduce the roster size, but we increase pay benefits for minor league players. If there were something that they could work out, it's never going to happen. You know, that's just in my idealistic world of hockey. That's, you know, only one person and one person in the world would like. But I always wondered why aren't they fighting for benefits like that? And I kind of know my own the answer to my own question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> then why ask it no um because <laughs> it, it, questions need to be asked yes they do i've
0: always i had a um, um i have been part of a union in the past and i get both sides of it you know i i totally get both sides of it i think the the division between the leagues exists because there are guys that are not on two-way contracts or or NHL contracts, you know, there are professional AHLers that don't have any association with a or professional ECHLers that don't have any association with an NHL club. So they are not entitled to NHL players association benefits. So that's, you know, they those players had to find a way to get their rights protected, so to speak, you know, the pensions, the insurance and and all of those sorts of things There's obviously fewer of them Than there are of the NHL I think there's fewer I have to go back and look at the numbers I did this like 20 years ago As, as um, an investor uh, I was in a law class and, and we had to do sort of Workers rights sections And being a hockey fan I decided to do some investigating in it And that's the only reason I know Because I'm a big hockey nerd Um <laughs> Nothing
1: wrong with that.
0: No, there. Well, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> um.
1: So, I mean, well, at least in the case of the NHLPA, the NHLPA is there to make sure that that when it comes to negotiation time of the CBA, the, the players don't lose too much. <laughs> it's not necessarily a matter of winning anything. It's a matter more of um, staunching the wound a bit before it gets out of hand. <laughs> At least that's how I've always seen them. But um, there are actually significantly more currently, from what I remember, um, of players on two-way contracts than there are um, not like career AHLers and career uh, ECHLers, um, like significantly more. Usually, at least at the AHL level, probably about 85 to 90% of the team are on uh, two-way contracts. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. It, sorry, it, I mean, it kind of goes back to each team can carry a fixed number of contracts. 50, I think, is a still a
1: cap that is the
0: correct no
2: it is 50 50 and then there's a certain uh forget the term that they use a reserve list yeah so they can have a reserve list of up to 90 which includes unsigned prospects
0: yeah players etc right right so yeah i mean it stands to reason you're basically carrying two two full rosters on contracts per team so your ahl you know if you discount the fact that probably five or six of those guys, five or six of those 50 are going to be CHL players that have signed, but they leave them at the CHL level until they become overagers or until they're AHL eligible. So yeah, I mean like it stands to reason that there are fewer members of that sort of professional minor league never have an NHL association, but they're still there. So I, I think once you get past the AHL, that number starts to grow back up because ECHL outside of, you know, goalies seem to be the, 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 what the hell's the word I'm looking for? The thing, you know, that's the story is you've got two goalies, at the NHL, you got two goalies in the AHL. Where do you put this other kid? Who's, you know, prospect, but he's going to take a couple more years. So that's their That's their fall over league for goaltenders. Cause the, the roster slots available to goalies is even fewer and you know you can't have your guy sitting there as the fourth string at your ahl he needs to play so
2: and then we're just starting to see now teams with the financial wherewithal to actually sign a lot of ahl only deals like toronto they're actually utilizing their echl club other than just dumping that one goalie so they have three or four guys or at least that's what I've seen now, uh, in the Carolina pipeline, there's actually a decent number of signed prospects playing regularly in the AHL instead of five, 10 minutes a night in the a. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think we're going to start seeing that a little bit more too. the, the development leagues, um, you know, for those, especially for those guys that come over from Europe that they don't want to leave in Europe. Um, they want them to start playing North American style or, or something along those lines, it's easier to shove them down to the ECHL and, and at least let them play North American styles, quote, air quotes, um, and get small rink. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) midget rink and get them used to, you know, if it's get them used to playing top six forward minutes or top, you know, pairing D minutes, even at some professional level outside, but, We'll see. I mean, it's going to be very interesting because one of the associations said that they were going to go to a hybrid style rink recently. One of the European ones. I forget who the hell it was. They were moving away from the the traditional Olympic size and kind of going to that in between Olympic and NHL size rink. Mm -hmm. Right. I I think that was Sweden because I know Finland already
2: has in the SM Liga. They're already using that hybrid. Uh, Ice where it's only ninety three three ninety three feet wide, as opposed to a hundred, which is the standard yeah. size.
0: Yeah, that so that'll be okay. Yeah, now I do remember. You're you're one hundred percent correct. As if you needed me to remind you of that, that it was sweet. <laughs> well,
2: I, I got to get one out
0: of the, every one hundred <laughs> facts I spew. You know,
1: <laughs> clock was right right twice a day.
0: Exactly. <laughs> unless unless you use twenty four hour time military time, then it's only right once
1: Zulu time yeah <laughs> yeah, so um Pat, did you what was your thing what what did you think? Did you think that um we'd see it go down to to three forward lines instead of sticking with four?
2: I mean it just kind of that's kind of my bias where where I come from. I think it'd be more beneficial because if you look at what's kind of happened with Jesse poliarvi in Edmonton, I mean, they've completely railroaded his development between the constantly calling him up, pulling him down and then healthy scratching him in the AHL. And just in my, in my mind, I think consistent playing time, not necessarily minutes, not saying every player needs to play 20 minutes a night as a forward, right. but getting consistently used in a shift where you're not seeing seven, eight, nine minute stretches where you're just stapled to the bench and doing nothing where the acid is building back up in your legs from your last shift. Your adrenaline is starting to drop because your heart rates had too much time to adjust. I just think that affects players more than anyone actually talks about outside of probably, um, you know, fitness Player uh fitness uh coaches on teams. Trainers. Yeah, that's the word. See? I'm only right
1: no, you were right. I just I just couldn't find the word. That's all right.
2: Both I have a friend
1: who does that for a living, so that's that kind of stuck in my head. So Oh
0: I play
2: with a couple on my on my beer league team and you know, they'll they'll give me shit for
0: it, I'm sure. (laughs) Pat and Patrick are obviously struggling with the English language today. Thank you, Cass. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I spent too
1: <laughs>
0: I spent too much time with a bunch of jerks last night. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Break you down. It's funny you brought up Pulley because I kind of started getting into it yesterday or the last couple of days with some people about Pulley and you know basically saying he needs out um, before before his career is unrecoverable. Um, you know, where he's at now, trending-wise. It's hard to see him, if the Oilers keep up what they're doing to him, it's hard to see him being anything other than sort of a third or fourth-line guy who can pot maybe 10 or 15 goals a year at most, you know, type thing. And that's going to be a complete waste of, of, of a fourth-overall draft pick in a kid who, for all intent and purposes, looks like he has got a top four skill set you just can't develop it or can't figure out his place in this world and his game's going to devolve into you know not that not they're not needed because the top six gets you in the bottom six gets you wins but for a team that's just dying for top end talent they're not helping him
1: yeah you know i i This sort of thing really frustrates me because, um, John Cooper, when he was an AHL coach, he was excellent at developing talent and ability. He, he was the most motivational type of of guy you'd ever see. I mean, there's a reason why his, the, um, his last team in, in Norfolk, Virginia, won 28 games in a row. Um, just spectacular like development coach gets to the nhl that's all out the window couldn't care less he wants plug and play he he wants a guy who can come from the ahl play his nhl game and if he doesn't then he's screwed so cooper at the ahl level was very patient very very much a developmental guy you know i mean he he could bring the best out of every player on his team Cooper, the NHL coach, um, has ruined the careers of at least four players that I can think of (laughs) because they weren't plug and play. They didn't come up from the HL and weren't able to, like, produce immediately. And so Jonathan Druin was one of those. (laughs) Not ruined career, but pretty damn close. Um, Slater Cuckoo, who's currently with Chicago, he he was slated to be a top pair defenseman and that's not going to happen cuz he he didn't get any playing time. Um Oh, and I totally am blinking on his name. He's now with uh Washington. He was a f- first round pick. Connolly. Yes, thank you. Uh Brett Connolly was another one. Um Connolly, they screwed up his development. Although admittedly, Brett Connolly, that was also partly um a Steve Feiserman issue. The first player he did it with was Mark Barbario. And Barbario was his top guy in the AHL for three years. And then he brings him up to the NHL. Barbario sat for the first month of the season and didn't play. Should have been up with Hedman, was not. Um, they went to playoffs they went to the—the the, the year they went to the Stanley Cup final, Barbario played one game in the entire playoffs, all four rounds. Um, his, his confidence is just totally crushed. He's lucky to be at this point in the NHL because everybody hasn't pegged with what Cooper did to him. Oh, you know, he's just a bubble guy. It's like, no, he should be running power plays and be on the top pair, but— <laughs> cooper like screwed over his career so i mean these things really annoy the hell out of me because it's like you have a guy who has the ability and poley may actually still have the ability but his confidence is shattered mm-hmm. he's not going to be able to like play where he should because he he doesn't think he can
0: yeah <laughs> and 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 I have, I have one follow up, and I want to ask a question to Pat regarding this. I think the follow up is, is that they're so bereft of talent beyond a certain, beyond that sort of McDavid, Drysidal, Nugent Hopkins level in Edmonton that they can't put him with anybody on a third or fourth line to sort of help him. Right, because there was the model used to be for a long time that, you know, you'd see the kid come up about twenty years old. He'd be down on the third and fourth line to sort of learn "quote unquote" how to play both ends of the ice, and then they'd work their way up to the second line. They'd sort of get promoted, and by the time they're maybe like twenty-two or so, they were on the tops. They were on the top line if that was their if that was where they were trending to go. Um, With him. I don't know why they don't leave him down at the AHL because his numbers down in the A look pretty good overall. I mean, he's, he's putting up points. He's getting nice time. Um, he's, he's generating offense, uh, you know, with the lines that he's been on and they bring him up to the AHL and they shove him on a line with Lucic. you know, a boat anchor. they shove him on a line with a couple of boat anchors and you, you. You sort of go schizophrenic, right? You don't know what side you're supposed to be playing. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Am I supposed to be offensive? Am I supposed to be a checking grinder? And it kind of messes with him. And it drives me nuts to watch what they're doing to him. So my follow-up question to you, Mr. Clark, as someone who has some coaching experience, how do you recover this kid? First things first, he needs to get out of
2: Edmonton. Just his value has been diminished from a, a organizational aspect point of view, but he needs just a different set of eyes. And I'm not talking about just coaching. It's he needs a brand new pe- set of people above him that are kind of working in his best interest. Cause right now in Edmonton, you have guys looking to preserve their jobs at this point. Um, honestly, what they have to do their their season is a wash. Whether they sneak into the second wild card spot or not, they don't have anything worthwhile from a hockey aspect of salvaging their season. They're not going to win a first round series against either, you know, the top of the Pacific or the top of the uh, top of the Central Division. So his best case scenario is probably just playing the rest of the season in Bridgeport at 20, 20 minutes a night and hope that that team goes on a, you know, a long enough run where he can be moved at the draft in June. Bakersfield. <laughs> yeah. Bridge, um, Bridge, Bridgeport's the Islanders. Did I say Bridgeport? C- you did say Bridgeport. Oh man. I'm probably saying that because uh, the Charlotte Checkers are playing Bridgeport as, as we're uh, recording. And then I saw the bad uh, Sebastian Ajo scored tonight. So, oh, <laughs> oh it's been quite a weekend okay. in my house.
0: We, um, we all we all knew you met Bakersfield, right, everyone? Good. No,
2: no. <laughs> I, everyone's shaking their head no at their at their uh, listening device. And I say that because my my uh, six year old son came in and was trying to show me some of his homework while I was trying to answer. So, I will not blame it on him. That's just my.
1: So here's my question with all of this, Polly Harvey, You guys have been you know, NHL fans around the NHL for a long time, as I have. Do you think that the reputation he is getting out of Edmonton is going to hobble him in the future? Or do you think that um, that won't be an issue with the next team, because I've seen a lot of thingies and often what one team thinks of a player, the next team thinks that same thing of the player.
0: I guess it's going to be very interesting. You know, these, these, not only does he have the weight of what's happening uh, of, of the perception of what's going on at Edmonton, but he's got the added weight of his position where he was drafted, you know, regardless of what's going on in Edmonton, or him being part of Edmonton, if this was a fourth, if this was a fourth overall draft pick somewhere else, kind of struggling in this same manner, it would be a fourth overall draft pick. That's you know projected to be a bust. So it's exponential growth factor of what this kid's got to fight through to regain his career. Yeah. I, I, I think the, uh, I
2: think his status as a player, he still has a chance to round out a 10 year, 12 year career as a top six forward. He is always going to be viewed as a bust because I think we, as a fan base, we misinterpret when someone is drafted, say, top five, what that actually means. Because in my mind, it's a minimum. Oh, you're going to play two to 400 NHL games, period doesn't mean you're going to have, you know, more than a point per game during that time period. It just means you're going to stick around this league for a long enough time. I think he's good enough from what I've seen in I don't know, the half dozen Edmonton games that I've seen him play in in probably the last 18 months, um including kind of two this week. Um he's got it there, but he just doesn't he's, there's nothing to gain or gain favor by playing with players. Like Patrick said earlier, by playing with Edmonton's third liners, I mean, Thursday night or Friday night, he was playing with, uh, you know, a call up in Brad Malone. Who's not a natural center, who is at best a fourth line player in the NHL, but here they are playing in the third line together and it just talent needs talent around them. Jesse pooley was never a good enough player to kind of carry players on their back like Crosby, like McDavid can. But there are only a handful of players at that high-end league that can do it based on all the restraints and restrictions of NHL systems, as I air quote. Um, Just because everything's so constricted, everything's so regimented to break out of that and, and produce some offensive flair. You're just not going to do that with players that can't even, you know, do anything beyond a dump and change as your center. So, yeah,
0: I just, uh, I just feel, I really do feel for the kid. Cause I, you know, I, it's just such a clown show in that front office in Edmonton. It's just such a clown show. <clears throat> But hey, they got Sam Gagne back
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> it, is, it was over. It took him two years to trade Jordan Eberle for Sam Gagne. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then and there's another player who, while he is carved, he carved out. Not I'm not sure what his future actually holds. Um, there's a player who actually carved out an OK NHL career after having his development stunted by the Oilers, you know, when he was 19, 18 and 19.
0: He became, I did, I wrote up a few um, mathematical models a while ago for, um, what the hell's what I'm looking for, to assess draft and development or drafting of NHL franchises. And he became sort of one of those curious ones that fought against um, uh, what people perceived him to be. I guess is what I'm looking for. So that sort of, um, if you looked at where he was drafted first round six overall, and at the time in 2007, um, you know, comparatively he was kind of seen as something of a bust um, for whatever reason. But in looking at his career, he's spent, I think it worked out to like, Um, career impact is basically games played versus expected games played, which means that the year you're drafted, you use a a one-and-a-half-year model, right? It takes one-and-a-half years from the time you're drafted to make an NHL roster consistently. That's, you know, depending on your age, you spend a year in the minors and about a half year maybe sort of bouncing back and forth between AHL and NHL, and then by the end of that one-and-a-half year, you should be consistently on an NHL roster he he's above the average that I came across significantly above which means they had him playing consistently at the NHL level a little bit earlier in his career but his point totals are were also above average for um, his development cycle but yet he was still seen as a bust which was really kind of curious to, to see, you know, he basically was expected to have played 820 some odd games by the time I did this. So basically 2007 to 2017, he was, he had spent almost 90% of his career in the NHL, which is actually pretty good. And his impact, which is points per game and all that kind of stuff came out to be in the top 100%. So uh, He's carved himself out a pretty sustainable career. Is he? Would you say that that is a bust for a sixth overall pick? Or a lot would you-
1: of a lot of people overvalue, and I'm when I'm talking people, I'm talking like organizations, coaches, scouts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, everybody in hockey men <laughs> trademark. Um, <laughs> they the everybody overvalues first round draft picks. doesn't matter where in the first round that they are taken. Um, The further down the line you get, the more they're overvalued, in fact, Um, because the 31st, soon to be 32nd guy getting chosen in the first round doesn't necessarily have the same ability as the number one, two, and three guys but they're still being evaluated as being slightly below where number 1, 2 and 3 guys are. And so the idea is that everybody expects and even even people who have been in hockey for like all their lives people expect first round draft picks to make an immediate impact straight out of the gate. Sydney Crosby style, never stopping, never slowing down. That is the expectation, and that doesn't happen. And when they do- that doesn't happen, then they're considered a bust. And so is Eberle a bust? Probably not. Sixth round. That's you know he's he's got a pretty reasonable like career. Um, but because everybody else is thinking sixth round overall first rounder. It's like, you know, the glowy lights, flashing lights, ah, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's a, uh, they, they expect way more out of them than what is reasonable. And so, um, which is why you get that label thrown around a lot, a lot, a lot, um, unless it's a guy who was picked high that no one expected to be picked high. And then they kind of have that, well, we'll see how they do, um, but for the most part, if people are are chosen in in the area of the first round, that is expected. Yeah, it's like it's insane expectations on these guys.
0: Yeah, well, it. Go ahead, Patrick. No, go ahead, sir.
2: I was going to say it's kind of crazy how the expectation of players playing in the league immediately after draft has shifted. Somewhere in the you know the late aughts. Um, It was kind of expected if you were a top five pick you're you're playing next year whereas kind of in the early 2000s and late 90s it's we might see you next year but probably two years down the road um you know with the exceptions of the crosby's the first the first overall picks that came in and were you know 18 year old rookie of the year candidates but a lot of these players and I'm just going to use Gagne as an example since we were talking about him here's a kid and leading up to his draft he played in four different leagues four different levels of play in 3 years and then he goes on and has a, a 49 points in 79 games as a as an 18 year old rookie in the NHL i think scouting is great at picking out talent i don't think they're good at evaluating, especially when we're talking about the money that goes into finding, you know, a top 10 pick, let's just say they're not great at developing a roadmap for when we can expect this player to be a fully developed NHLer. you know, I think too many times we've seen kids forced into, you know, top six roles and then they're kind of marginalized into a Bottom six career, sort of like Brett Connolly, And we're talking mm-hmm. about. He 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 was in Tampa, he didn't materialize. I guess the way Tampa originally thought, but he's carved a niche and he's playing plenty of games and he won a ring last year with the Capitals. I think, and this is just spitballing, having seen him enough. He's a smart enough and a cerebral enough player to stick around the league. But what happens is, I think sometimes actualizing talent in a new league year in and year out kind of gets washed aside when you're just jettisoning someone too fast and too soon. I believe in the whole overripen a player model.
1: Mm -hmm. No, I agree. But Connolly, the deal with Connolly was that he, I believe he was also sixth round or sixth overall pick. Maybe it was not. Correct.
2: No, he, was, he six.
1: was six. And so um, the deal with Connolly, and again, this is partially Eiserman to blame. I mean, God forbid, I'm actually blaming Eiserman for something. But <gasps> gasp! I know. And so um, the problem was that they didn't send him back to junior, and they should have. He clearly wasn't quite ready to make the NHL, but Eiserman kept him too long, and you know wasn't going to send him back after, after 10 games. And so, um, he ended up playing in the NHL. I think it was like 60, 63 games or something in his, his rookie season as an 18 year old, 18, 19 year old. And, um, he shouldn't have been there. Mm -hmm. He, if he had been developed properly, uh, he would have gone back to, uh, the WHL, he would have done a year in the AHL and then he would have been ready for the NHL, but they rushed him and that really hurt his development. And, um, he never really recovered from that. Was he a a sixth overall pick expected, you know, the expectation, did he actually meet that expectation? Probably not, but he's certainly better than where he currently plays on like the third or fourth line. Um, so so yeah, I mean that was again another botched uh, development.
2: Right. And he's always gonna be compared with the players he's drafted around. Yeah, that's which makes it say. tough. So, you know, he he had Taylor Hall, Tyler Sagan, um oh, uh, who else was in front of him? Uh, Eric Gabradsen, Gabretts, uh, Ryan Johansson, and Nito Nita Ryder. So You have, you know, with the exception of one guy who was mismanaged also in Gabranson, I think, um, just ridiculous output. And so when you're comparing and contrasting, you know, all these guys that you're now grouped around and linked to forever because someone decided to take you at a certain spot. I think it just sets up unfair uh, expectations because, okay, Hall and. Hall went to the NHL right away. Sagan went back to junior. He went back to Plymouth for one more year. Um, and I think most of the other guys kind of did the same. Yeah. And you see where their careers went, and then you see where his went. So I think it's it's way too easy to rush a guy, but it's way too hard to be patient enough i i think there just needs to be a development plan for each player that's a little different and i love cassie your example of one more year of junior one ahl and then you know come to the nhl at 20.
1: yeah i mean i think that uh, i don't think getting drafted at 18 is too young i think being able to play in the nhl at 18 is too young though
0: i agree yeah, that's been another discussion that we've kind of been kicking around. I'm sitting there and I'm I'm kind of giggling because I just went back and looked at the 20, I hate saying 2010, I'm saving one syllable, the 2010 draft and that first round. And I was kind of coming up with this sort of the expectations game beyond maybe like the top five. It really gets skewed when you have guys that year like Kuznetsov, Tarasenko, Fowler and Skinner coming after Connolly and the impact that those players have had. Um, I think you sort of have that American dream type mentality, right? Everyone thinks that they have the ability to get rich, but you know, only one in 1 million are going to be able to do it for whatever reason. So everyone thinks that, you know, uh, uh, the 26 picked overall could, you know, be the steal of the draft, but how often does it happen? Right. And, and when it's Kuznetsov and somebody else says, now you're, now you're comparing, well, the Washington Capitals managed to find, you know, Kuznetsov or Tarasenko for, to the Blues at 16th overall. So, you know, this guy is a, a perennial, you know, 40, 50 goal scorer, potential 60 goal scorer. Why is Brett Connolly not that? Because he was picked 10 places higher. you've got that weird dichotomy almost
1: that's yeah and people people don't understand that i get into this argument a lot do you take the best available player or do you take the player who best who fits what your needs are best right and so the common mentality is you always take the best available player no matter what and my thought was that well yeah that's great but um if the next player you're getting is a goalie and you need a forward, are you still going to take the goalie? <laughs> I mean, that doesn't quite make sense to me, but I mean, most people would take the goalie. Um, so I th- I think it comes down to, you have a really great amateur scouting staff. Like we'll use Brett Connolly as, as the continuing example. I think what happened was that they had a really good scouting staff. They picked the right guy. And then they just botched his development. They didn't know what to do with him. They weren't, you know, they were trying to rush him along instead of being patient. Or maybe they they took what the scouting staff said and blew it up out of proportion and, you know, I don't know. But I think it's I think in a lot of cases you end up with what your amateur scouting staff says versus what people in the organization say. And I think there's a disconnect there in some with some teams is that some, some, you know, amateur scouting staffs are better than others. <laughs> some teams' internal organization is better than others. And so either you pick really poorly um, because your scouting staff isn't great and then you develop great because you can and say hello to the ambulance going by.
0: I was going to um, say, is, is that the hot take <laughs> ambulance or? Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. <laughs> or, or you have like a really great amateur scouting staff, and you know, internally, just they they don't know what they're doing. So it's, I think in this case with Connolly specifically, it was a matter of Iserman hadn't been in the position for very long, and so he hesitated. And he kept Connolly around as, as a uh, um, safety measure of sorts, rather than looking at him with a cri- more critical eye and thinking, no, you know what, this guy doesn't fit here. We need to send him back.
0: Uh, I, my, the the one I'm I will bang on is Mirko Mueller and how the Sharks just unquestionably screwed up that kid's development. You know they they left him on the roster, his draft year, instead of sending him back to Everett for one more year. And still nobody will admit that they misjudged him. The the quote, I believe, from, from I want to say it was Doug Wilson or one of the, the people under him, was that they felt that he wasn't going to learn anymore uh, in the WHL, and obviously he wasn't old enough to play in the A, to which I say, you scratched him is you scratched him for the majority of that season. What's he going to learn in the press box, how to play NHL 15. Right. With You right. know, and, and they brought in Larry Robinson that year. That was one of the years they had Larry Robinson to sort of help with player development. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, what, you know, did Larry Robinson not say the kids should be playing, not sitting around. So, you know, as, and you watch what happened to him after that, he essentially becomes a throwaway in part of a trade, to New Jersey and he's been struggling to put his career back together and when I sat there and I'm I'm not a professional Scout but I sat there and watched him playing Everett going oh god I would love to have this kid on my team in about three years right because he had the foot speed he's got the size he's got the nastiness he has he's you know you kind of saw everything there not to be sort of a, a almost Seth Jones type player to use a comparative out of that same draft, you know, cause the two of them went head to head and, you know, you could see Seth was the better player right there, but you could also see that Murko could become a better player. So his ceiling, so to speak was, was, you know, was a little bit higher than what I think he ended up getting evaluated and where he's going to end up. So.
2: Yeah, these front, these front offices talk out of both sides of their mouth when, after a player is developed or uh, drafted yeah. where it's like, Oh, scratching a player. Well, looking up from the stands and watching the game, you'll learn something. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you can. But guess what? You can also watch enough games on TV and think, you know, things players need repetition because NHL games are just repeated, small events that happen continuously. And the best teams happen to execute on three or four more of them during a game. That's it. And that's what the coaches
0: demand. Yeah, you learn by doing, you learn by failing. Yeah. You know, and, and my other con- bone of contention with the San Jose organization is their AHL franchise has been coached by the same guy for forever and a day, and I don't see a lot of development coming out of those kids. You know, uh, the the players that everyone raves about on San Jose have generally been drafted and gone straight to the NHL. The ones that end up coming through their system are the ones that you just are kind of like, eh, it's okay.
1: That happens a lot though. That happens a lot to many NHL teams in that they end up not developing their own like draft picks very well. And so they don't really develop into anything, you know. I mean and I don't I the only thing I can figure in all honesty is that you have all these guys, you know, it comes down to the whole nepotism thing where where people are hiring friends and buddies and family and assuming that they know hockey and they kind of really don't, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of, oh, well, you've been around the game for so long, you know, everything. So I'm going to trust your opinion, even though maybe their opinion isn't great. Um, There's not a lot of critical thinking in the NHL from what I can tell. And, and so there's a lot of assumptions being made. There's a lot of oh, you know, he's he, he'll be fine. He just needs to do this. It's like, well, yeah, maybe not. But, I mean, for example, um, again, you know, the Tampa system, uh, Cooper really had the expectation of players coming up from the AHL knowing exactly what they need to do without telling them. And but, but they
2: Cassie, were lost. <laughs> don't AHL teams play the exact same air quote system? that the right. NHL clubs do, and uh, that's just a terrible <laughs> argument that, oh, I know. that someone I know would I be it. throwing in your face.
1: Right, and, and the thing is, is that, yeah, that's all well and good, but unless you're telling those players, I mean, they're coming up to a new team and they're expecting someone to tell them where to go, what to do, and how to do it, like they have been told all their lives, you know, in hockey, and nobody's doing that. They're just coming up and being, you know, in the shell, they're playing on the top line. They come up, they're being put on the third line. And they're like, I never played on the third line. What am I supposed to do? And nobody's telling them what they're supposed to do. And so they fail. And um, and there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of assumptions going on. And it really screws a lot of players over. So, it, it's
2: it's funny ahead. that you said that um, these guys are they're all full of themselves these coaches these scouts these front office executives they try and over complicate what i think is a pretty simple game i think mainly to just kind of keep their livelihoods for an extra 20 years because hockey is not that complicated but they built restraints upon restraints upon restraints into a game to make it so meticulous that they can just dictate what happens over and over again and just I mean, they're square-pegging and round-holding these players continuously. It's like Ron Francis, NHL Hall of Famer, former and probably future GM in the league because nepotism. Mm-hmm. Um, a center, decent center. He had a good career, and then he became a Hall of Famer because he played with the best hockey player in my mind, um, and Mario Lemieux. <coughs> Saved back to va- We'll save that hot <laughs> take for another time, Patrick. <laughs> uh,
0: but my you cough? know, where's my cough button again? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, in one GM meeting, he he tries to institute the uh, the defensive team always puts their stick down in the faceoff circle to you know add another nuance or restriction within a, what should be a simple event. Two players put down their sticks, puck is dropped, and then game action consi- resumes. Instead, we have this meticulous almost like NFL or high-end college football offense coming up to the line barking out 10,000 plays using 25 seconds to 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 set up to orchestrate a simple event of dropping a puck we got to worry about who put their stick down first and how wide their feet are and where they're going to be because, Oh, someone might have a slight advantage because their hand eye is either quicker. They put more leverage down on their stick. So they're stronger when they go to swipe at it, or they know to bump a guy into the ref. So he can't get the right leverage to knock a puck back to a defenseman.
0: Or, or, so, or they or he has that huge boat paddle blade, like Leon dry
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Hey, more power to you. Hey, as long as that kid can make those passes like that and shoot like that, I don't care how big his blade is. Oh. Good crime. That kid can lay some flapjacks. Um, Cassie. Mm-hmm. Braden point is a curious uh, outlier to me for the Cooper model. Okay. Just because, I mean, he, he basically didn't, he just play like a few games in Syracuse after the, um, or was he Plymouth? Um, after his after his CHL team was season was done, they bumped him up to Plymouth or to secure Syracuse, and then straight to the NHL.
1: Yeah, that sounds right. Um, he so it the whole thing. was very interesting to watch between Cooper and Eiserman how they how they operated and um they operated very very differently
0: oops hang on Uh, just hang on just a sec moose jaw sorry i completely forgot he was a whl guy (gasps) i know i'm sorry i'm sorry i i I will now go flog myself appropriately (laughs) while cassie continues on her discussion
1: all right so and Iserman just recently stepped aside, hopefully to go GM for Seattle, but, um, the, uh, so Iserman had an idea about what he wanted in a team, how he wanted to put it together, how he wanted it to work. And then he gave all those players that he, he had collected to Cooper for Cooper to use. And, There are a number of players that did not fit Cooper's model, didn't get a lot of playing time, took a very long time for Iserman to give up on those players and either not give them a qualifying offer or trading them outright. And so, as I've said, there was a number of them. (laughs) I mentioned some of those earlier. Um, But if the guy is playing and he is playing in a way that benefits Cooper's system, even if he's not a part of Cooper's system, Cooper will allow it. And I mean, allow it. It's not one of those, this works. I'm not going to fiddle with it It's say, I don't like it, but it works. So I guess we're going to keep it for now. But if it doesn't work, he's out. <laughs> he, he, Cooper's very rigid thinking in a lot of ways. And, um, and so Braden Point works grudgingly. Cooper allows that to happen, but it he works. And but he fit Eiserman's ideal players. Yeah, you know, the what Eiserman Iserman wanted to see his team look like. And so um, the interesting part was that even though Cooper didn't like all of the players Eiserman got him and went and play a number of them. Iserman never stepped in to tell Cooper to change it, to change that, to to make them all work. He was very hands-off with Cooper, figured Cooper would like um, sink or swim on his own, and that was that. And he was going to continue getting the same players that he's always gotten. I don't know how that's going to play out with Breezeball. Um, I don't know if Breesbaugh is going to continue doing what, what Iserman had been doing or if he's going to try to tailor things more towards Cooper's style of coaching and playing. But um, for as long as, as Braden Point scores, he's okay where he's at.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a Coops troop.
1: He's an acceptable player. No, I wouldn't call him that. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's an acceptable player for now, but as soon as as soon as he stops scoring, he is he's in the press box. I can guarantee it. He's not going to get any any ice time. He's going to be like dealt with harsh, harshly because he doesn't fit into the team concept that Cooper has.
2: And that's why Cooper will be without a job, and Brandon Point will be a top five player in the league.
1: Oh no, Cooper will always have a job because he is a a successful coach. Now, if he goes, I mean, all you have to do is look at the standings for Tampa right now. Ever since Cooper took over the lightning, they've, they've been, you know, at the top of the league, maybe not at the very top, but you know, near the top. Um, I liked Cooper as an AHL coach. I do not like him as an NHL coach. I refuse to go watch the lightning because of Cooper and, um, I really hope that they don't like go very far in playoffs. <laughs> I hope they get the president's trophy curse.
2: <laughs> Ouch! Well, oh yeah. See, it's funny. I can I can have a similar discourse about uh, Bill Peters coaching because you know I think one he's a brilliant mind. He he does kind of squeeze the most out of players, but he is so rigid. And so, just uncompromising, sort of like some coach in in Toronto that will win a co- will win a cup probably in the next few years based on talent and talent alone, nothing that he's necessarily doing. Um, but he just grinds and irritates away at players to where he was pretty he was pretty hated after his fourth season, and now he's in Calgary and. To what should be no one's surprise, he's actually succeeding because he has the most talented roster he's had since he's coached Team Canada at the World Championships with Sidney Crosby. So anyone can succeed when you have some of the greatest players. Now he will put he will put together. Sorry, a little mic failure there. Um, he will put together a solid team. But like winning a championship is never going to be a great barometer of, are you a good coach? So what Cooper is doing down in Tampa, I absolutely agree. He is a great coach, but oh boy, did the tactics wear thin after a while? And then there's kind of a limit to what you can do, you know, after a few years.
1: Well, I think the only reason he's still coached there in all honesty is because Cooper's a spiteful sort, and if Iserman had fired him, Cooper would have gone to a team in the same division. And he didn't want to see that. If, hmm. if Iserman had known that Cooper would go to the West Coast or to the Western Conference, I think that he probably would have fired Cooper like a year or two ago. Um, Cooper is very successful in what he does, but he did kind of lose the room a couple of years ago he's got it back now but um and the guys buy in because they're winning you know it's like they're not gonna give up on a coach when they're still when what he's doing is is working but that doesn't mean they have to like him i don't know if they like him or not i know that i don't like him (laughs) but um but yeah, so I don't know if Brisebois is going to have the same sort of patience. Um, this is his first full season as general manager. But I, I really believe, and this is my personal speculation, that the reason that the Iserman didn't get rid of Cooper because Cooper wasn't playing the players that Iserman got for him um, was because he really didn't want Cooper to go coach for a rival team. So he kept him,
0: which is going to be interesting because I'm kind of of the opinion right now that I think this for better or for worse might be Cooper's last shot at getting over the hump, you know, because they've had, they've, they've had that sort of Bruce Boudreaux regular season success Mm -hmm. and we're sitting on the precipice of them, you know, running roughshod through the league again, you know, tearing the league, a new one and come playoff time kathunk. And there comes a certain point where organizationally you have to go, is it coaching or is it composition? Well, obviously, we've got the horses to run through 82 games at this pace. So what's left?
1: Well, there's a thing, too, though, with that is that there's a lot of coaches. Actually, let me let me back up a bit. There's a lot of teams that are built to win the regular season. Um, like San Jose <laughs> used to be, um, and then there are a lot of teams that are built to to win in playoffs, and that's to- totally different models. And you're not going to often get a team that does well, like outstandingly well, during the regular season, also winning the Stanley Cup. There's a reason why teams that get the President's Trophy at the end of the season don't win the Stanley Cup. Um, you know, when you're you're planning for an 82 82- game slog with a variety of teams that takes a certain type of team composition to like get you going you need depth you need a variety of players to face a variety of, of teams you need a whole bunch of different things but it's a totally different mentality and a totally different different team structure going into playoffs where you're facing one team for up to seven games and then another team for up to seven games, and then another team for up to seven games. And so you don't get, there's not a lot of overlap with that. And so the Lightning right now are clearly built to win the regular season, but they're not necessarily built to win playoffs.
0: I'm not going to hmm. disagree. You know, that's uh, San Jose has always been an interesting, another interesting case study for me. Um, Just because, you know, everyone says every year, you know, they're the potential of the Stanley Cup champion. And they go out and make all these great big deals. And, you know, they've made the Cup final once in their entire history. They've made the conference finals three times. So if
1: you look at the Stanley Cup winners, if you look, if you go through like the past 20, 25 years and, and you see where they started out with at the end of the season, like what they where they were with their um, the standings. You'll find that most of them were actually number three or four in their conference. They, they were actually no two or three. Sorry. They were like number two or three in their conference and um, almost overwhelmingly so, in fact, at least. They used to be. I did I did that like ten years ago. So I don't know what the last ten years turned out to be like. But um but it's never the top team in the conference, or rarely, very rarely does the top team in either conference win the Stanley Cup, let alone the top team in, in the NHL.
0: Yeah, the wire to wire run. The the thing with the the thing whole thing with the president's trophy has always been funny to me because it's when you have sixteen teams get in and only one of them has the President's Trophy, the odds are higher that the team that won the President's Trophy is not going to win the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just because they, you know, they, they played either in a weak division or a weaker conference and they were able to make hay with all of those extra points because of that and end up with the President's Trophy doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best team, to your point, Cass, that they're built for you know they're built for the regular season versus they're built for the playoffs. Do they have an organizational depth to handle injuries? Is the bottom six um, uh, forward, is the bottom six forward group strong enough? You know the the great examples of the Darren McCarty, um, Maltby and Draper line. Those guys mm-hmm. would kill you in the playoffs. You know you you basically you hoped for a zero sum game with your top six. You know, their top six versus your top six, you may get a point or more out of them, but it's your bottom six that really pushes you over the edge.
1: Tip scoring.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. I,
2: co- co- coaching is October through the end of February. It's pretty much stay out of your own way before you muck things up. And then around March 1st, you actually have to start to facilitate some things. Because I've seen too many cases where teams crash and burn because they overcoach when really NHL regular season, it's most talented teams will win, you know, let's say seven out of 10 games. And when it comes to the playoffs, I think it's just certain guys, and I'm not sure I've seen this from Cooper, they have to either switch their philosophy or their mantra. Completely, and be willing to go, you know, check, counter-check with an opposing coach. Because I think playoffs are really the only time line matching really makes a difference. And using those depth forwards, well, there's a reason these players always, the these guys like Max Talbot during uh, the early Penguins run in 08 uh, and 09, why he, you know, he scored two goals in the Stanley Cup final to to clinch it against Detroit. Why, uh, you know, uh, Dave Bowling comes up. They're good hockey players, and now they're forced into situations where they have to be played and played regularly and not sheltered. And they get offensive zone starts. And it's just Coaches need to stay out of their own way sometimes. And I don't think Cooper is one of those guys because I have seen him where he's just overly stubborn and he just gets punched and from the left and then from the right. And he doesn't know what to do.
1: Now. So Cooper, the deal with Cooper is the only thing that's saving him in the Tampa system right now is when they won the Calder trophy, AHL championship in 2012. And So everyone's looking at that going, oh, well, he can win at a professional hockey level. He should be able to do that at the NHL, too, because there's a lot of those same players on that team that are currently on the the Lightning. Yeah, there are like three players from that team that are currently (laughs) on the Lightning, but um, maybe four. But the thing is, is that during that, that AHL run in 2012, like I've said, they won 28 games in a row. They won their last 40 out of 43 games including playoffs. Insane. It was an insane run. I was there for it. I actually was there for their first game that they lost after well 29 technically because they won their first playoff game. I was there for game what would have been 30 and and they were devastated. The team, the players were just I am you know, like interviewing guys after the game and they were just devastated. You would have thought that the their dog got run over, their grandma died, And they lost their lucky pen all in the same day. You know, (laughs) they were all like, I don't know how to deal. I mean, they're on the verge of tears. They just did not know how to deal with losing. And so the thing was, though, was that they had so much talent on that team that they could have beaten anyone in the bottom third of the NHL on a regular basis. It was the top you know the bottom 10 teams in the NHL they c- could have been like right there with them and so for cooper to be writing on that still is is kind of funny because talent got him through ability got him through not coaching and so um at this point he's always had a problem with like changing his game plan in midstream Um, he'll freeze up during, he'll get really stubborn. Like you were saying, Pat, uh, during a period, he'll like stick to his guns. He'll be like, no, we're doing it this way. I don't care if it's still not working. We're still going to keep doing it this way. He will adjust sometimes during period intermission, but more often than not, he adjusts between games. That's not uncommon in the NHL. He, He tends to be stubborn about it rather than, delusional or um unaware (laughs) where he knows what's going on but he has his game plan and he wants to keep using his game plan because his game plan is right and it's going to work damn it and when it's not working he sticks to it because he's like waiting for them to prove that it will work um even if it never does, he was running the power play for a couple of years, and the power play was dismal. It sucked. He refused to give up on it, though. He refused to pass it off to one of his assistant coaches to like take over because he was going to make it work, damn it. And Iserman like hired an assistant coach for him to take over the power play. Cooper didn't do it for a year. He Cooper kept it because he needed to. He needed to change it. He needed to fix it. Um, so yeah, he, he can be very rigid, um, in a stubborn way, not in a delusional or yeah you know, delusional way in that, Oh no, everything is fine. What are you talking about? <laughs> or, um, <laughs> wait, things are going wrong. What are you talking about?
0: <laughs> uh, as I like to call it the, the Carlinian way, the Randy Carlisle syndrome.
1: <laughs> yeah. Clueless. Um, and so, so, yeah, you know, people are like, oh, well, no, he won an AHL championship. He can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
0: Is that he sounds to me like one of those cases that the team wins despite their coach. Like kind like, of like that. Ninety five avalanche. You know, the, you know, the ninth, <laughs> first, right. <laughs> they won despite Mark Crawford Crawford, Yeah. Yeah. You know, and. I won't say the the two thousand and one team because I think Bob Artley is a better coach, but you know, they kinda won despite Mark Crawford.
1: They, they won because of Wah.
0: <laughs> well yeah. Oh god, yeah, that's that's a given. But yeah, you know, we sort of go back to that, you know, Crawford dined out on that on that cup run for fifteen years
1: mm-hmm. for head
0: coaching jobs and did, you know, He had a Vancouver team that won despite his coaching, you know, and then when he got to a place like Dallas and could not replicate it because they didn't have the horses, you kind of start to see what coaches really are. Right. And and that goes back to this one recurring theme that you hear constantly. Show me a great goaltender and I'll show you a great coach. Is that really an (laughs) axiom? You know? is that really an axiom or is this an is it an accident it's a complete
2: accident
1: total accident
2: if you look at the current season and you look at how goaltender numbers are falling and everyone's saying goalies are garbage no it's just our expectations have been set one way for so long And coaches were doing their defensive systems for so long and now counteracting to all the speed and all the skating through the neutral zone. And we're seeing less passes until uh, established zone possession takes place that they just don't know what to do with it. Because for years and years and years, they haven't been coaching kids that had the talent to handle things like that. And Cooper's no exception. Neither is, you know, half the guys in the league right now. You know, it's not surprising to see success. Well, I think in Carolina, Rod Brendamore's success is, I think he's one of the few guys that stays out of his own way. He doesn't change too much in game or game to game. He, he allows continuity and then he's found a way to at least correct mistakes. I think he could be out coached by half the league in a playoff series, but what's working now is working. But then I I look at a guy like Craig Berube, who's kind of gone up and down from the NHL to the AHL. So he's had to mix things up. And what he's kind of doing with St. Louis is pretty impressive to me. I don't think Jordan Bennington is, is, you know, making him an outstanding coach. I think he's gotten the guys in front of him to mess up a little less. So basically, the goalie has a chance as opposed to no chance that we see on too many teams, you know, I think um, Allen bailed the blues out early in games, but yo couldn't get uh, Mike. Yo couldn't get out of his own way. And then bring in the new guy. He just changes one or two things. And then he steps back and, Oh, things suddenly work. And we're about to win our ninth straight game. And, Oh my gosh, this is a revelation. It must be the goalie. No, it's just, we're taking it one step back. We're seeing something that doesn't work and we're just making a minor adjustment. And Oh my gosh, look, we can actually make a save because it's not a three on one, four on one situation. And we're closing off passing lanes and we're not leaving a guy out to dry constantly. But that's just me because I think from coaching from the press goaltender analysis is just garbage. Everyone just looks at a save percentage and says, "Oh, there's a good team. They're, their goalie has a 920 and they've won X number of games." Well, no, it's not that simple. But I, I don't know why everyone thinks it's so complicated.
0: That's funny because sorry, Katz, I just I've, I was listening to um I forget what the hell it was. So I was listening to something. They were basically oh you know what it was the Ranger or not Rangers um it was the Islanders pregame show, and it was Jen Botterill. She had talked to Robin Leonard and Thomas Grice about, you know, because they're they're sort of bucking the trend. Their save percentages, have, you know, are kind of through the roof this season. And they were at, she was asking him, you know, why is that? You know, you're not seeing a great reduction in the volume of shots, but your save percentages have gone up. You know, is it is it the Mitch Korn goalie whisperer effect? as some people want to claim. And, and I think it was Leonard basically came out and said, well, the shots are coming from expected areas. In, in, whereas last season, you didn't know where they were coming from. It was more akin to like playing in the AHL where you had defensive structure breakdowns and shots would be coming from unexpected areas or they'd be able to make these end zone passes that at the NHL, you know, in a, in a good system, Defensive structure wouldn't happen, but maybe once or twice a game if there was a breakdown. So, I, you know, it's really weird because you, you you want to attribute some of it to coaching and some of it to maybe the goaltenders are being coached a little better, but it's not just one thing. It's a culmination of everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, it, so
1: go ahead. I'm sorry, Pat.
0: I was going
2: to say, it's amazing when a goalie doesn't have to change his line of sight And be moving when a shot is taken to be able to make a save. Because when you stand there, I can make a subtle movement to move where the puck is. But when guys are going side to side, when you have pucks going across the blue line or behind the goal line and everyone thinks it's like, you know, oh, we need to go to Hogwarts to understand what's going on. It just kind of blows my
0: mind. (laughs)
1: Okay, so this feeds right into the question I had to end this episode. I don't know if you want it now or not.
0: Oh, let's do
2: it. Okay, <laughs> hey, I'm ready.
1: Okay. okay, so this this feeds exactly right into this for me because we've been talking about forwards. We've been talking about goalies. Nobody has mentioned what defense does to help the goalie see the puck.
0: Spoken like a true defense woman.
1: <sighs> exactly. So. And I get into this discussion with a lot of people. I have a question for you guys. What do you think the purpose of the defense is? Defense men, that is.
0: There's your cliffhanger. There's your cliffhanger. I
2: I am biting my tongue because I have so many (laughs) things to say, so this will be a fun discussion next time. We'll save
1: it for that. yeah, because like every, well, I mean, there's your ending. But um, the the tag the tagline after that for me is: you hear everybody talking about scoring and forwards. You hear everybody talking about goaltending. Almost never do you hear about people talking about defense. Like defense men, you hear about goal or forwards playing defense. Don't talk about defense men though.
0: Dun dun dun. next time on (laughs) 3v3 follow us on twitter 3v3 podcast this has been the 3v3 podcast sponsored by nobody